Tech Sounds presents The Conscious Capitalists. Hello and welcome to The Conscious Capitalists, hosted by two of the co-founders of the Conscious Capitalism Movement and co-authors of the Conscious Capitalism Field Guide from Harvard Business Press, Raj Sisodia and Timothy Henry. Each week, this podcast covers current events and business news and Raj and Timothy's latest thinking on what it takes to build a conscious business. For more information and notes from the show, go to www.theconsciouscapitalists.com. And now, Raj and Timothy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our latest episode of The Conscious Capitalists with myself, Timothy Henry, and my partner in making the world a better place through business, Raj Shosodia. Hey, Raj. Hey, Timothy. Good to see you again. Good to see you. And boy, are we lucky. We have a really fascinating guest with us today. Today, we have Greg Goff. Now, I'm going to introduce him. I could introduce him at the one hand as sort of this traditional oil guy, you know, like this guy spent 30 years at ConocoPhillips coming up the ladder, being, you know, successful senior leader, gets recruited over into a more entrepreneurial venture called Testero, uh, which, he, you know, does a kind of an interesting job of getting a 1200% return on investment when he does that. So he leads it to huge success. It gets acquired by Marathon Oil, and he's sort of a, a legend in the oil industry on the one hand. Now, I could stop it there and just add that Harvard Business Review in 2018 described him as one of the best performing CEOs in the world. But along with that, Greg is much more. He's started the Goff Center for Strategic Leadership at the University of Utah, and most recently joined the board of ExxonMobil in a way that we'll get into in a moment but with the support of one of the first major impact activist investors, First Engine. And this became um, a headline event of this sort of foreign, sorry, outside uh, board members being put onto ExxonMobil. And we'll talk a little bit about that whole experience. Greg Goff, so glad to have you. Good morning, Timothy. Raj, good to see you. Good to see you again. Okay. So with that, Greg, tell us a little bit about, you know, you, you're, you're out in Utah, you get your MBA and you're looking around at jobs and how did you end up at, at Conoco? So it's kind of interesting, Timothy, at the time, Conoco, and this has come back quite a ways, they actually had this incredible management development program that really provided these great opportunities to do like project type work out in the people field. And so you got to learn a lot of very different things. And it was, a at the time, it was a really highly respected way to leave school and, and, and start work. And so it was a, it was actually looking back, it was an incredible experience. I learned an incredible amount and, uh, and really enjoyed the opportunity. Yeah, Conoco was a great company. It, it came with that background from DuPont. So it was really very, you know, very ethics driven, very safety conscious. I was always later in my career, I was involved with the Conoco Phillips merger on the marketing side. And I just remembered the, the steadiness of the Conoco people in terms of their values and things. Mm -hmm. And doing a little bit of research, I found that uh, I don't know where I came up with this, but there was something about a bus ride to Lake Tahoe early in your career at Conoco that sort of started to mark you out as a, well, they called it a people person, but tell us about that bus ride. Well, that is going back a long, long ways in time, to be honest with you. And uh, I think it was like my second job out of graduate school for Conoco. The good thing about Conoco at the time, you did jobs that maybe lasted only one to two years. So you were always rotating into different opportunities. And this particular opportunity, I worked at a refinery out in the central part of California, and we were having some type of a safety function up in Lake Tahoe to recognize people. Like you said previously, the company put tremendous emphasis and focus on safety. It was just a, it was a value of the company. And uh, this was a recognition event. And I was this young person, going up there with all these people to celebrate this and kind of in charge of making sure they all got there. You know, when you're 
right out of school, you kind of do a little bit of everything, whatever needs to be done to make everything work out. You do that. And in this particular case, it was everything from buying the beer so they could survive the bus ride from Central California to Northern California and having the entertainment to make every everyone happy on the way getting there. So it was, it was a, I think it was, like you said, it was an experience to allow you really to appreciate people. We're all so very different. And no matter what we do or where we come from, when you look at people, it's, uh, it's just, I think it's extremely important that you understand a little bit about them. And you can, particularly in a business, when you're trying to do good things, if you understand people, then you can help move to a better place. And that this opportunity was just a, kind of a crazy type thing to be able to go out and spend on a several hour bus ride <laughs> and get to know these people. Well, it's always interesting when somebody goes from, you know, Conoco, part of the DuPont family, very big, and Conoco Phillips, a very big corporate environment. And while Cesaro wasn't small when you joined, um, you know, it was a lot smaller. And you took it on a bit of a rocket ship of ride. And that's unusual. What was it about it was in you that sort of said, you know, corporate's nice, but it's time to go try my entrepreneurial wheels here. And let me give this a go. Yeah, I, I think my background, even growing up, working, my family, my mother's side of the family, they were immigrants from Greece. They had businesses and it was everyone in the family worked in the business. I actually started working in the family business in the fifth grade, if you can believe it. I, I In the fifth grade, and I also remember my pay was 40 cents per hour. And so when I worked in the summer full time as a fifth grader, you made $16 in a week. And the biggest thing for me, actually, was the day that I hit the dollar an hour rate. I mean, that was like the the most major thing ever. But what it really did was uh, it taught me a tremendous amount about responsibility. And I, I actually, when I look back, I think that responsibility actually turns into ownership. And I believe that in a business, if you can create a sense of ownership, then people, they, they, I think they can do really incredible things. If you own something, even if it's a, you know, a public company and you have a job in a company and the environment allows you to own something, then I think that's an important thing. And so what was important to me was that even though I was brought in to work for a public company as the CEO, I actually thought I owned the company. And so I was tremendous commitment to being able to make a difference in everything in that business, from the culture to the financial performance. And also because of my background, the importance of safety in, this, in the energy business was a core value of the company. And we were able to kind of pull a lot together. I think from my prior experiences of really working all over the world in different cultures and that, we were able to develop a strategy and work on the culture and created a culture that allowed you to really get superior execution of the strategy. And we developed those almost like a marriage between the two. And we're able to to take off on a what I call the journey to take a company, as you described a little bit earlier, that actually wasn't doing very well at all and transform that company. And over the course of only eight years, which isn't, when you look back on it, it, it's a relatively short period of time that to take that company and increase the value significantly, but probably more importantly, created really a, a place where people love to work and they were great working together with people. And to this day, I still run in people in airports or traveling around that work for the company, and they ask, "Can we go back and do it again?" It's it's kind of amazing. It makes you feel really good. So that I think that even though the the uh, business performed extraordinarily well from a creating economic value, it also created a, an incredible culture that had a big impact on people, including myself. Highest form of praise when people say, "Hey, let's go back and do that yeah. over." <laughs> right. Well, Greg, uh, as you recall, you and I met in 2017 when your chief legal officer, Kim Rucker, uh, introduced us. And I think you were going through a merger 
as well as a name change uh, exercise at the time and sort of crafting a new identity, a forward-looking identity, which that new name ended up being Endeavor. And, um, and, and we started the process of you rethinking the purpose of the company and broadening that and you know, bringing in all of the, uh, the pillars of, of conscious capitalism. And we did a lot of work on purpose. I just want to go back to that time and uh, ask about uh, your uh, thinking and your motivation at the time. Why did you feel? I know that Kim kind of planted a seed there that while we're changing our name, we should also think about a few other things. And, um, uh, and it was a really delightful experience going through that uh, process with you. But any thoughts on uh, what you were thinking at that time and why the idea of coming up with a purpose or a renewed purpose for the new company uh, mattered to you then? Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting that you bring that up, Raj, because I, mean, I remember when we first met each other and the energy that we were able to create just because of our interest and specifically around purpose. But maybe to take just a step backwards, when I reflect back on the time we had at the, the company and what we did, we were, we were very much a, a learning, growing, developing organization. And we focused on the culture. And I think if you go back and you, and you look at it, it's almost like you can see the growth. It's almost like a child. You see the growth in the organization. And, uh, and we learned so much and, and, and did so many different things. And as, as you grow and you're, you have greater capability to do things and you're really in search, like, when we met in search of a, a, a bigger meaning for the people in the company, because we'd come from a place where we, which wasn't the best place. And then we made uh, incredible progress and brought in lots of different people to the company. And, and there was almost like a thirst to keep growing and developing. And so when, when you and I met each other, we were, because we were, we'd done maybe more, basic things, more simple things. Cause when you start to think about the purpose in that, that's a, that's a pretty deep type of conversation because it, you're really getting into the hearts of the people and, and the impact can be uh, incredible. So I think one was just the, almost the evolution of a company and a company that was willing to learn and grow and, and develop. And at the time when we met, it was, we were well positioned to take the next step. And as I mentioned to Timothy just a little bit earlier, I always viewed it as a journey. And on that journey, we were ready to take something much more meaningful and impactful and deal with the purpose of the organization. Because we'd learned so much about so many other things that were probably more critical at the time than the purpose, because it was a turnaround of a company. You know, we, the purpose was important, but I mean, we need to put money in the bank to pay, to make the payroll and everything else. And we were able to successfully do those things with a tremendous amount of velocity, which I think helped out. So that's, I think it was a kind of a pivotal point in the development of the company. Yeah. And as I recall, you know, we did a lot of town halls and a lot of interviews uh, with uh, people at every level, including people outside the company, suppliers, customers, uh, partners, and so forth, to really get a sense of what is the future of this company, you know? And I think industries, like the auto industry is going through that right now, right? The big transition from internal combustion to, uh, to electric. And of course, uh, the uh, energy industry is going through a massive transition. And I think the sense we got was people wanted to feel like they're part of the future, the emerging future, as opposed to we're part of yesterday's uh, industry, you know, and I think that's what the purpose uh, exercise really enabled uh, people to sort of awaken that sense of excitement about the future that, yeah, we will be relevant and we will actually lead the transition rather than be, in some sense, victimized by it, right? So I think that was, I feel like purpose is especially important for industries going through that kind of massive transformation. You know, the underlying need is not changing. We need energy, we need transportation. Right. The way in which we meet those needs can change dramatically, sometimes you know, very quickly, as is happening in the auto industry. So 
So in that sense, I think that purpose exercise was uh, was very significant. I, I actually pulled up the uh, some of the language we came up with. Uh, first of all, do you have any thoughts about that uh, in terms of the relevance of purpose or the importance of purpose in that kind of an industry? Well, I think you you made a couple of uh, a very very important points, and um, I think because at the heart of the company was this belief or this uh, desire to make a difference. And I think you probably remember, we talked a little bit about that even during our conversations. And that actually is how, one of the reasons we changed the name because of the name Endeavor had in it, had, could imply that you were trying to make a difference. So we, yeah. at the heart of what we wanted to do is to make a fundamental difference. And so the, what you helped us with on purpose in that, in a way was kind of a search for that meaning for the whole organization, not any of us individually. And, and as we had kind of evolved to that point, we were ready to kind of think deeper about what you're talking about, you know, how society was changing. And, and, and we, I, we believed that we could do things to fundamentally make a difference and have impacts on communities and on people that worked in the company and the future people. And also, at the time, part of it was, I mean, it was not focused on what you did as much as we spent a lot of time on how you did it, but we were evolving into why, why we did it. And, and our view, going back then, Raj, was that the young people that we would want to join the company in the future, if we could provide greater meaning on why we were doing these things versus what we were doing, you know, in the past, you'd say, I need a chemical engineer. I need a mm-hmm. uh, someone that's a specialist in IT or that. But it was more we need people because of why we're doing this to really get on board with us. And I remember towards the end we had um, you know we we came up with some purpose statements, but we had some criteria. How are we going to assess these? You know, and uh, I thought these were interesting. Uh, you know, for, just to consider again that it had to be ownable and actionable for endeavor, not just for the industry, but for this company, right? It has to be specific. Everyone has a role to play, everybody in the company, right? So it inspires a sense of ownership and a drive to contribute to that purpose. Uh, fulfills people's desire for meaningful work. And this is a very important one, as you said, especially for the younger people, but really for everybody. Uh, it considers our children and future generations. So people feel a sense of pride about what we're doing for, uh, for those, those to come. And it changes the, the narrative of the energy company, the typical energy company, so that we are operating with pride and we have, you know, we're looking to the future with anticipation and not with fear or dread. And we have the courage of our convictions. We're willing to do what it's going to take to bring that, uh, bring that purpose to life. Yeah. You know, Raj, I think back just to one of the things about the time we spent doing that is it's easy to work in a company and never think about this. Just the just the time and the process of thinking about it and raising an awareness, especially like you said, doing town halls and, and letting people think about it. In, in retrospect, that's a pretty p- important and powerful way to do things because you can, you can go to work and you can do your job no matter what it is and then really not give this purpose any real thought. So probably one of the most valuable and important things that we did was engaging people and getting to think about things because the fact is it's easier not to mm-hmm. and, and you and you mobilize you mobilize people to do all that and and uh and then they even on their own they can start to think about it from their own individual perspective and and that in itself can be incredibly uh powerful for them as a person i know for me as I look back and because I think the thing that allowed us to do this was that growing, developing type of a company, the people, I think that's something we all shared. And that was part of our culture is that, you know, we, we weren't, we didn't think we're the greatest thing ever. We always, we could, we always wanted to get better. And, and so that, I think one of the most important things now looking back on it was just, you know, creating this space to have these conversations and 
letting people express themselves like you shared three different ideas that came from lots of different people, as I recall. And, and, and I think you can't underestimate how important that is. Yeah, I love it. I want to replay the tape then a little bit and go back to it was a turnaround. And, you know, you're stepping into a turnaround. Um, there's a ton of operational issues that need to get fixed. So you're coming in and you're going, okay, I got to fix the operations. I've got to re-energize the people in the organization. And at some point I'm going to start thinking about strategy. And, um, and when you look back on that, you know, I sometimes say, you know, listen, conscious capitalism isn't an excuse for not having a good business model <laughs> and a, right. a good strategy. Uh, but you had, it was a leaking boat and you had to sort of like, be figuring out, you know, like which, which leaks do I, how did all that work when you think about the culture shift? Because a lot of people can come in and, you know, they can do a quick turnaround, but to uh, do a turnaround and work on the culture at the same time and re-energize the organization, that's a different cut on things. Um, mm -hmm. When you look back now, what were the, what were the couple things that you did in those first six to 12 months that you say, yeah, that really made a difference? There were probably three things that were extremely important. I think the first thing was to focus on the most critical problems mm. and focus on them and go after them, recognizing that there were certain things that needed to be addressed and dealt with. I think that was one. The second thing was a view of the type of people that we needed to make the company successful. So one of the things that happened in the first 12 months or so was a pretty significant change in the top leadership of the company. Mm. And so we, I guess I should say, I just made the decision that we needed a different type of people to help take the company forward. And that we needed to uh, make that change with a tremendous sense of urgency to get there because every day was so important. And, and so that we, we made a lot of change in people and, and I think because of the, the vision that we had and what we were trying to do, it was exciting for people to be able to do that. And then finally, I think what was important was working on strategy and culture together to develop a strategy of where we wanted to take the company and then a business plan there. But at the same time, being absolutely aware of the need to have a culture that allowed you to execute that strategy. For example, you know, in, in the energy business, and, and you probably recall this, Timothy, from your time doing some of the work helping, is that actually one of the keys to success is in what I call superior execution. Because you're you can look at companies and their business models and how they execute the business is, is a standout from to differentiate them from their competitors and, and even other businesses and other industries. And so that um, I think to develop a culture that could execute the strategy was very, very important. And, and the culture in a way could be simplified by having just some guiding principles. And we had five guiding principles that help provide the framework for the type of culture that we wanted to have. And just to give an example to maybe provide a little bit of better understanding is that one of those, so the most important guiding principle was around core values. And, and there were like three or four core values. One of them was about respect. And what we said about respect was really simple. It was everyone, everywhere, all the time. That was it. So when people in the company talked about respect and how we how we worked with each other was very simple. Everyone, everywhere, all the time. We had, we had a, uh, another one of our values was about integrity. And I always told everyone, the best judge of our integrity is everyone on the outside that deals with us, whether it be a community, if we're doing business, because we had a significant business in California, if it's how we impact the Southern California area or a competitor, a supplier, or people even in the government, because we're a fairly regulated business. But our integrity is judged not by us, but by the people who did business with us. So we had these core values. But one of our uh, guiding principles around our culture was what we called powerful collaboration. 
And we wanted to bring people together, not to have teams, but to work together in a very powerful way. And I think people, they learned how to do that and they learned how to be, uh, why that was so important. And so uh, like anything, you put it in perspective of what was going on at any point in time, you know, today you may look at that differently and say, well, that's, that's how everything is. But if you go back 10 years or 12 years or whatever, and you say, this is kind of the environment there, those guiding principles, I think were really, really critical. So those were the three things I think mm. that were the most important. Well, building off that, I mean, you know, for our listeners, you know, we're talking about refineries, right? You guys were running right. refineries. We're talking about yeah. union guys. We're talking about big right. oil guys. And, you know, so when we're talking about culture change, it's not like we're going into a software company that makes apps right. and saying, hey, guys, let, let, let's change the culture and make it more collaborative. Um, so I, I'm really curious when you go into that, you're, you're trying to like, you know, like you say, you know, operational excellence of a refinery. Everybody's got a refinery, but how we're going to make it different is by operational excellence. It's not so simple to change that culture. You got to change it. You know, you got your middle management, you've got your plant man, your refinery management. And, and I'm curious, where did you start? Like, where did you think were the two or three points where, okay, I got to attack people at this level I don't mean attack. I mean, I got to embrace people right. at this level and bring them into the culture journey. I mean, how did you think about that? What was important, I think, was to have all of the leaders that kind of had an impact on other people, no matter how, how broad or even how small that impact was, but was to get people that were, they could be a supervisor, like you said, of, of a, one of the process units in a refinery and may have six or seven people working for them, but was to help them see how important this could be. And, and, you know, Timothy, I think one of the things that it boils down to is if you do it well, one of the things that comes out of that is that you actually care. And that if people, you know, Raj, maybe you think about this also, but part of the purpose is how people see you as their leader, no matter where you are in a company. But if, if they actually see that you genuinely care. And, and I think one of the things that you said earlier that I experienced in the start of my career was about safety. And I can tell you that someone coming out of graduate school and I, I, I wasn't unsafe, but I wasn't aware of how important it was. And it actually changed my life. What I did at home and with my family, if it was cutting the grass, you know, it was to make sure you had some safety glasses on to protect yourself. But it it had such an impact. And I think one of the things that you said earlier was how strong of a value that was for the company. But the most important thing about that value was it actually said someone cared. And that I think is so important and, and really so uh, valuable when you're trying to create a meaning or the purpose for people. Yeah. No, I, I, I love it. I mean, I think basically, you know, the thing that Raj and I often say that at the core of a great culture is people feel cared for and they feel their work is meaningful. And it's yeah. just a human trait. I mean, it's just one of those things that, you know, you want to be more human at work, help people feel that they're cared for and you care about them and and, and that their work is meaningful. So purpose and caring, you bring that together and you unleash incredible power inside an organization. And I think it's interesting. Some companies think about the safety issue more in terms of liability and risk and you know financial exposure, et cetera. And they say, we need to get our accident rate down because we kind of, you know, because of the financial implication, as opposed to saying we need to keep our friends safe. And we need to watch out for each other. You know, there's a whole different, you're doing the same things maybe, but uh, the reason why mm -hmm. again uh, changes. So I am curious, this is a part of the story I don't know because what happened after the merger with Marathon um, in terms of, of course, anytime there's a merger, there's the issue of cultural integration, right? The Soro Endeavor under your leadership had created a certain kind of culture. I'm not familiar with Marathon's uh, culture, but uh, how did you deal with that? And secondly, uh, the purpose mindset that you were taking with you into that into that merger. Uh, 
was that able to survive? Was there some hybrid version of that or any, anything you are able to share? I know not yeah. shareable. Yeah, I think, you know, the reason, the reason that we decided to combine with Marathon was that when we looked out to the future, we saw an industry, and this is before COVID, and, and even though climate change was being discussed, it probably didn't have the intensity of the conversation that we have today. So this is going back around the time that we met Raj. And um, I think the, the view was that to, to really prepare for the future, it required a company of scale from a capability standpoint. You needed enough scale to drive the changes in some of the things that we do as an industry, particularly like using technology, and that uh, that you you just needed to be a bigger company to do that. And therefore, uh, Endeavor and Marathon came together and merged the companies, and and the cultures were were very different, you know, as you would expect. I mean, they came from different places and, and the cultures were, were uh, just different. And I think when you try to uh, combine that and get the best out of it, that's, a, that's kind of a challenging thing to do because, you know, culture is how you do things and that's the people. And in this particular case, a lot of the people from Endeavor didn't stay around, you know? So I think the culture didn't evolve to be like the culture of endeavor. It, it kind of took a different path mm -hmm. and, uh, whether that's good or bad, I don't know, but it's, it just probably went a different direction. Yeah. Which is pretty common as you point out. And that's, yeah. yeah. And many of these mergers also do come with some, some degree of layoffs and uh, reductions of redundant functions and all of that. So all of that, negatively impacts morale anyway in the short run so yeah it does well i want to switch gears slightly which is you decided to set up a leadership institute at your alma mater you know kudos to you mm -hmm. and what i'm really intrigued by is that you called it a strategic leadership center so i'm always you know interested in talking to our guests of so there's conscious leadership there's you know integrated leadership there's authentic leadership you chose the word strategic to put that in front of leadership say a little bit about why and what was the thinking that lay behind that yeah so let me let me just take one step back and talk a little bit about maybe the purpose of the leadership oh that's a good point leadership good point. <laughs> was uh you know maybe it's been a little bit uh, a common theme of things that we've talked about here today, but one of the things that I believe is that we need to make a difference, no matter what we do or whether it be a business or a nonprofit or whatever, but as people, as individuals, we should make a difference. And making a difference doesn't need to be transformational, but we have, we have the capacity as people to make a difference, whether it be impacting one other person's life, whether it be impacting your children. But we, I just think as part of who we are, we should, we should make a difference. And so the, what I had observed over time, starting back as we started this conversation earlier about coming out of graduate school and going to work for Conoco, there was all these great young people coming out of universities across the United States. And in this particular case, a lot of them didn't make it. And what was interesting was that, I mean, they may have been great in engineering school or in finance or whatever their discipline was, but there was something about their ability to kind of be a leader. And I use the word very broadly that was missing. And even back then I noticed it. And, uh, and I started to think a lot about it. And I, I noticed over a long, long period of time, it was, uh, it never changed actually. And so I decided uh, several years ago that I was in a place and I, and I had a strong desire to help other people. 
one of the things that I learned along my journey of work was, and this was probably back in the late 90s, was how important it was to help other people be successful. And that today, you may take that for granted. But when I put myself back and how I kind of grew up in work about management and I mean, I, I don't, I don't think people even called people leaders when I first started working. You know, it was the manager, the supervisor, and management and, development uh, program. Yes, right. <laughs> and uh, and it was so, it was so. So my observations over time was that we needed to help what I call young people be better prepared to be a leader, whether they're an engineer, whether they're whatever their background is, and and that was missing. And there was things you could do to do that. So therefore, this idea about creating this leadership center, which was based on experiential learning to really yeah. complement all of the other academic work that was done for people. And the idea was, can we help people become more successful faster? Not to be successful, but to be more successful and maybe get there a little bit faster by providing them during their, this is for undergraduates, during their education at, at the university so that they're better prepared actually to work. I mean, it's mm. to be able to do that. And then this idea of looking at it from a strategic standpoint, and we probably don't have time today to get into what the parts of that are, but it was to really help people uh, even though you could say on a continuum in the early stages of leadership development, but to yeah. bring ideas forward and at least introduce them to them so that they could be introduced to those ideas of how you can inspire people in an organization, whether it's seven people or 10,000 people. And so it was to introduce strategic concepts that would help with the, uh, with the leadership and their development. and so. Um, it's had, we've had great success so far doing that. It's continuing to develop and evolve and it's, uh, it's open to lots of different disciplines, engineers, business students, medical students, architects, architectural yep. students. And so it's, it's a, um, and we're still learning and developing it as we go along, but from the feedback from the people that have been a part of it for the last several years now, they they can put their hands on things that's had a big impact on their life and help them be better prepared through the experiences. Yeah. It's not about lectures. It's about experiences of yeah. doing things that help on leadership. Well, what I love about that, and I want to dig just a little deeper, and this is going to be a little personal because this weekend I uh, sat down and I wrote my daughter, who's you know in her mid-20s and just been promoted way up, you know, shout out to my daughter, you know, to a big senior leadership role in her early mid twenties. And, um, and, you know, I'm trying to say here, here's two or three things to really be thinking about, you know, from your dad. <laughs> and, yeah. and I'm, and I'm curious, you have children and you have a leadership center, you know, what's your advice to your kids when you, when you, when they sort of say, Hey dad, you know, tell me about, about leadership? What are the couple of things I ought to be focused on early in my life? So I, I think one is a very, very strong awareness of your values. I think that's just so foundational to that. And, and uh, I, just, I just think you have to be very, very conscious of those values and because it impacts everything that you do. It, not only it impacts what you do, but also impacts how you do it. And so I, I, and you, and you could sit down and write down, first of all, you have to make sure you understand what a value is. Yeah. <laughs> and then secondly, you could say what values are really, really important to me. And because don't give me a list of all these things because they all sound good, but yeah. think about them as you, as a person, what are those uh, values that are so important to you, and you're going to just honor those to the to the you know, until the last day. Yeah. And then the sec and I think then the second thing is to to look at things 
from a what I call a principle-based approach to decision making. Hmm. If it's if you have principles of what you're trying to do, especially when you work with other people. For example, if you and I are working on something, Timothy, and 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 maybe I'm not as aware of your principles as and you're not aware of mine, but we're we don't see things the same way, but maybe sometimes it helps to, to at least uh, clearly state what your principles are. And I yeah. think that helps you. I think it helps you get to a better place. And if you talk to other people and, and there's no question if it's a more complex problem or if it's an opportunity and you take time to kind of lay out your principles with the people you're working with. And, and there's a common agreement around the principles, it's probably easier to get to where you need to be. But if there are certain things that that are your principles that they don't intersect with mine, we may yeah. never get anything resolved. So I think those are the two things, values and principles. Cool. Could you just clarify that a little bit in terms of the difference? So give me an example of a principle uh, as opposed to a value. What, what would be a, a principle? So to me, a Kind of a, a principle, or if you're looking at a opportunity. So let's say, in like in, I'll use something from the energy space. Maybe one of your principles is you want to be free market based. So like today with the energy transition, if you're pursuing opportunities in clean energy, you're not as inclined to take an opportunity that's subsidized by the government that creates a lot of uncertainty in that. So your, your principle is that you're going to be very free market. You want the market forces to be able to determine the success of your idea. That would be a, to me, okay. like a principle. Okay. Okay. Just Thank to be you. specific. Cause I don't want to confuse them between. Right. Two no, no, that makes sense. Um, and then what about purpose? Do you try to connect these uh, in addition to values? Do you try to connect the young people to why they want to be leaders, what they're trying to bring about in the world. That's, that's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting question. So I've worked for a long time, Raj, you know, and I, about a, uh, I think it was last year. I thought, you know, I know, I know, I kind of feel like I only have so much more time left in my life. I mean, that's just the reality. We don't like to talk about that, but, but I also have tremendous energy and passion to do things. And so I sat down and in a way, kind of had this personal brainstorming session, if there's such a thing, mm-hmm. I really sat down and said, what's, what is the most important things to me? For what is my purpose for the next? And I, and I said, I had 30 years left. That's what I said to myself, mm-hmm. but I didn't do this with anyone else. I did it with myself. I said, I have 30 years left and I want to do a lot in 30 years so what is my real purpose? And mm. at the end of the day, what it all boiled down to was other people. I believe my purpose today, and you know, your purpose, I think, can change depending yeah, on yeah. where you are in your, in your career or in your life. And, you know, to, to me, my purpose today is to work and help other people be successful. And I spend a lot of time doing that. It's, uh, I mean, I may do lots of other things, but at the heart of my purpose is to, is to really help other people. Mm-hmm. And you help young people discover their own purpose that way as well. Right. Exactly. Ask those questions. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I love it. And, and Greg, it's always interesting. You know, you touched on it a little bit earlier, but I want to come back to it about your personal journey, because clearly the ideas of values and helping others, and I mean, those don't just come out of the blue. The part of that is in the blueprint and the DNA of how you were raised and some of the things that influenced you. When you look back, what were two or three of the big influences early in your sort of framing of how you approach life? I think, so I've spent actually a lot of time thinking about this and, and it's also probably foundational to my views on leadership, but I was, I, and I guess I'm lucky when I look back on it, I think I was tremendously impacted by working in my family business at such a young age. 
and there was no, and it wasn't like what you did, Timothy, with your daughter. The people in my family didn't say, these things are really, really important. You know, that in fairness to people back then, you didn't do things that way. But by, so my uncle owned a market, like a, not today's big supermarkets, but how they were back then. And I worked there all the time. And when I was in the seventh grade, I was responsible for closing the market down in the nighttime as a seventh grader at 10 o'clock in the night. Mm. So he didn't say to me that this is the most important thing you're going to do. But by saying, I want you to, I, I, I trust you. I have confidence in you. I believe in you that you can make yeah. sure, you know, everyone's out of here. And back in those days, we actually hid the money. We didn't even have it safe. We, <laughs> we hid the money. You had to turn out the lights, all the doors around, everything was locked, everything as a, think about that as a seventh grader. And so that just demonstrating to me that I could do that, I think it had such a tremendous impact on me. And I believe that how those experiences, young people, and that's the reason why we do experiential learning with the leadership Mm -hmm. center is to impact people in a very positive way that hopefully it stays with them forever. And so the answer to your question is, I learned so many things when I look back and being a young, young person working in that market with my uncle that, you know, I, I guess you just have to say you're lucky, but they had tremendous impact on me. Mm, beautiful, beautiful. So I'm curious, Greg, how you're providing that experiential element uh, to the students there. How do you get yeah. yeah, Raj. So what we do is we work with businesses and actually we've done some of them all over the world, but we work with, with businesses or even uh, organizations and, and define a problem and then assign a team that then works with that business, depending on, on what it is. And, and the members of the team have different roles so they can experience different parts of the of the project that they're working on. And then they, they do multiple projects over the course of one year. It's a one year uh, commitment to the leadership center. And so they're, they, they do not get any credit for it. I give them a scholarship to, re, to recognize them for their time. So it's people who want to do it because they wanna learn to get better, but it's, it's really through different types of projects. Just to maybe take one minute here and give a brief example. In one of the one of the high schools in a an older high school was expanding in the neighborhood and they didn't do good community outreach. And there was a lot of just people were really frustrated and, and disappointed in the way it went about. So the team came in and they developed a whole community engagement plan to deal with all of the issues of growth and expanding this high school that had been well established in an older, in an older area in that. And so they dealt with the the uh, all of the people in that community, the school board, everything to make that more successful. And so it's, it's not just like a developing a marketing program or evaluating a new business opportunity. It's taking a opportunity or a problem and then de- putting the, a team of students around it. There are only 50 in the leadership center. It's, it's only, uh, it deals with just 50 students a year. That's all the capacity we have today to do that. I wouldn't say just only 50 that's students. That's, that's a significant number. Um, but I would be remiss if we didn't sort of change to your latest chapter. All of this is sort of a prelude to your new role as being a, a member of the board of ExxonMobil and the whole activist first engine movement. Tell us a little bit about how you got involved in that, because that isn't one of those like obvious things like this activist Right. You know, impact investor is going to come along and grab this guy from the oil industry and say, come on over here. How did that come about? So the owner of Engine Number One, him and I, he kind of reached out to me and we met each other and he shared some ideas of what he was thinking about. And as we and we spent a lot of time getting to know each other personally, we had we until whatever that was now, two or three years ago, we didn't really know each other. And we were both willing to invest a lot of time just talking and 
doing things to get to know each other. And that, that's something that we both shared that was very important to us. And then the idea of what he wanted to do to, to really drive changes at Exxon for the future. I mean, the, comp- the performance of the company had been poor for, for a very long time. And, and from my standpoint, I just, I felt like the company is like one of the, if not the most important company in the energy space, but mm-hmm. they needed to change. Yeah. They needed to change to help for the future and, and how they changed can have a tremendous impact on so many other companies. And so after spending my, you know, of the majority of my working time in the energy space, I wanted to help drive the change for the industry. And I believe that in this case, I mean, ExxonMobil, I think was a phenomenal company, is a phenomenal company, and but they needed to change change the way they're doing things. And, and what engine number one was trying to do, and we had principles, you could ask him, we, one of the things that we did at the very beginning and back to your earlier question, Raj, we, we had very specific principles of what we were, what we were going to do and also how we were going to do it. That was really, really important that we had those principles of engagement, but the whole, <coughs> the reason to do it was to help position the company for the future because our view was they needed to change. And, and what we discovered is lots of investors felt the same way. And so it was this company, which we call this iconic American company. It still is. And it has tremendous uh, potential to really be a part of the future as we, as, a, as the world changes, the way we use energy, the way we impact the environment, the way we impact people and the way we impact lives of people. And, and that's kind of the heart of why we went about doing that and then had a way to go about making that happen. One of the things I'm impressed with is engine number one's put out a little white paper, which I happened to review recently about the whole, the whole idea of total value framework. And in essence, what they're saying is, you know, you need to take a long-term perspective. Okay, got it. And two, you take it from a stakeholder perspective. And if the stakeholders start to benefit and you start to create value there, then eventually that plays through the shareholder. Um, but they also talk about the whole idea of externalities and the role of externalities and how we start to move things from being external factors to internalizing them. And and I guess that's one of the big challenges for a big energy company is that there are these big externalities that we're creating and we haven't totally internalized them into our business. Um, how does that affect? I mean, that's just a prelude. That's a background, right? That's where uh, engine number one's coming from. How does that translate into your role on the board? How does that then start to say, as a board member, how do I start to advocate for the kind of shift that that implies? Yeah. So one of my views was that at the time, I believe companies as part of their governance need a kind of a core group of people from the industry to be part of their governance structure. I mean, the the benefit of having 10 or 12 or 14 directors is that you have 10 or 12 or 14 directors. And at the core of that, whatever industry you're in, I personally believe you need a, a group who come from the specific industry at the time this company didn't have anyone from there. So I, I think well, let that, me just stop right there. Cause that was something that when I read that, I was just amazed that there was no one on the board at ExxonMobil who had any energy experience. Yeah, I mean, that was just amazing to me when I looked back and I read about that. I mean, yeah. how does that happen? <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. Those, I, I'm not sure how that happens, but um, I just believed to, to get the benefit even of kind of everything we've been talking about today, which is about mm. people and creating meaning and creating value by how people work together. I think in a board, you have this group of people and at, at the core of it, if you have people that are accomplished, respected, knowledgeable experts in the industry, what in this case, energy, and then you can complement with all the other types of directors with who have tremendous backgrounds and experiences. And if you do that and, and with the right leadership, 
they can add tremendous value bringing that outside perspective and oversight to the, to the business. And that was one of the things that we felt was really important was to have a core group of people with energy experience on the board to help the company just uh, with its oversight. Yeah. And the last point on that and not wanting to speak out of school, but you're coming in as an activist and it was a contentious process and it was bruising and the, some of the, I call the entrenched interests were not interested in having new members on the board. And then you walk in and um, so how do you help sort of bring together a board and executive team after there's been that kind of, you know, public conflict? What, what are some of the things that, you know, you've learned from that process? Well, you're exactly right, Timothy. It's, uh, I mean, most people who aren't on a board of directors are asked to be on the board of directors. <laughs> Please join us. <laughs> right. And so you, so, so, so one, that wasn't a surprise. I mean, everyone knew how myself and the other, the other, my two other fellow directors got on the board and, and at the, and the people at Exxon and the other directors, you know, no one maybe liked the process, but they know the outcome. Mm. And so, and I, I think, I think everyone shared a belief and a desire to move forward and do good things for the company. And I, and so it could be different. People may hold animosity and all that and make it much more difficult in this particular case. I think they heard what the shareholders said. I mean, that it was kind of an amazing outcome and therefore that that brought people together to kind of approach things and, and talk about the strategy of the company and the governance of the company and, and, and really take the company forward. I think that's, I think it's been good because the people have, have, have an openness to be able to do that. And that's really important, but it's not easy. I think it, I it's absolutely not easy. I bet. Well, I, I think it's wonderful to see activist investors who are a force for good. You know, there's so many activist investors who are just coming in looking to flip, like, you know, what happened at Whole Foods uh, before they were forced in a way to merge with Amazon. You know, that activist investor was not motivated by these kinds of long-term holistic mindsets, right? So, and I know that BlackRock has been a big player behind the scenes. Uh, aligned in this case with engine number one to make this kind of change happen. So that's really, that's, that's great. Thank you for uh, your service in doing that. Cause that's, that is potentially transformative for the industry. Yeah. I think it's an interesting point, Raj, because in this case, the, you know, engine numbers one's ownership was very, 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 very small. And so in contrast to other activist campaigns where they have this, big position. And if they double their position, they make a lot of money. That wasn't the case here. Yeah. And you know what? I think what's interesting that you don't, you know, in this particular case, the company has a lot of individual shareholders mm. and you know what? They probably benefited the most mm -hmm. from this because, you know, the, the people, whether it be in their pension fund or whatever, when you think about activist campaigns and in, and use this as an example where you have someone, in this case, engine number one, with an incredibly small stake playing a very big game. And they don't, they're not going to, you know, for engine number one, they're not going to gain that much, even if their stake doubles in value relative to what they do. It's, it isn't that meaningful. What is more meaningful is having an impact to hopefully do what the original intent was, and that was help you know, change the company and prepare for the, the changes that are going on in the energy space. And at the end of the day, probably in this case, the biggest uh, beneficiaries, although you never hear that, are individual shareholders. Yeah, and retirees and everybody else. Yeah, retired. That's exactly right. You know? Yeah, yeah, that's that's terrific. Greg, anything that we, we didn't cover that is a pet topic of yours that we'd like to? No, I think one, I'd just like to to thank both you and Raj for the opportunity to just share share different views in that. I think it's uh, stuff on that, you, that you're working on and, and the help that we got from Raj several years ago. I think it's it has the potential 
have such a tremendous impact and it's so important and it's and it's to me it's the evolution of how organizations develop you know and some organizations aren't there but i i'm i really appreciate the opportunity to share at least some of my personal views on it but at the same time by being able to raise the awareness and that that you guys are doing and talking to other people and that I mean, you can learn a lot from doing that. So thanks. Just thank you for, for what you guys are doing from that standpoint. And I really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you today. Well, thank you. Thank you for being such a, a wonderful example at multiple levels, giving back, having an impact. Thank you. Thank you for the good work that you're doing. And thank you to our listeners. And if you enjoyed today's podcast on whatever channel you're listening to, please feel free to hit the subscribe button. And if you have any thoughts or comments, please feel free to leave those on that channel. And if you want to reach Raj or I, you can go to theconsciouscapitalists.com. And there's a place there where you can leave us a note. And I'd also like to produce, thank our producers at TechSound. Thank you for the work you do each week to get this out. And Raj, final words on your side? Well, I'd like to acknowledge the Conscious Enterprise Center at Technological de Monterey, which is a supporter of, of this podcast and of our work. Thank you, everybody. See you next week.